Welcome back to iGen Politics, a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Xi. And this is Jill Wine-Banks. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas did not disclose his real estate deals, a $19,000 Bible, he accepted luxury vacations from a billionaire, and he and his wife, Ginny, enjoyed that billionaire's yacht, which explains why today's Jill's pin is a yacht. It's a very appropriate Jill's pin, and unfortunately, there's more flying on private jets, meeting with other mega-rich far-right businessmen and Federalist uh, Society supporters, and all while claiming to enjoy that simple life of travel by an RV parked in a Walmart parking lot. Today, we're going to talk about why this type of behavior is so concerning for a Supreme Court justice, what the possible consequences are for engaging in such behavior, and legislation that can be enacted so that no Supreme Court justice ever does this again. And with us today is the perfect guest to discuss these questions, as well as Trump's $500 million lawsuit against his former lawyer, Michael Cohn, for what Trump alleges are ethical breaches of the attorney-client privilege. He is Richard Painter, who was the chief ethics lawyer in the Bush administration and currently serves as vice chair of Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, called CREW a very important organization that has done so much to help with ethics in America. He also teaches at the University of Minnesota School of Law. And so we are really happy to have you with us today, Richard. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. So I, I want to start off by, by focusing on the first ProPublica piece about Clarence Thomas accepting very, very lavish vacations paid for by billionaire and leading donor to Republican and conservative causes, Harlan Crow, where Thomas basically mingled with the likes of Leonard Leo, a conservative act, legal activist and longtime officer and board member of the Federalist Society and corporate executives. Um, I was disturbed that he didn't report this hospitality on his required reports. So can you talk to us about, first, what gifts and what hospitality can and cannot be accepted? And second, what must be reported according to U.S. laws and judicial ethics? Well, the uh, free uh, travel, uh, free travel on a jet, um, on a personal jet or on a yacht uh, can be accepted, uh, but uh, it has to be reported. It can be accepted if it's from a personal friend. Uh, you can't just accept a free travel from anybody. But a personal friend, yes. And let's just assume that Mr. Crow, the billionaire, is a personal friend. Why they have a friendship is, is a matter that may be explored later on here. But assume he is a personal friend. The justice can accept the travel on the, on the jet and the yacht and all the rest of it. But it has to be reported. And indeed, uh, Justice Thomas had reported some free travel uh, way back in 2004, somewhere quite a while back, and it was subjected to some criticism. So he decided he just wasn't going to report it anymore. And uh, that's a serious problem. Uh, The public has the right to know who's paying for free trips for justices on private uh, yachts and, uh, and airplanes. And that didn't happen here. So you mentioned the friendship angle, and I I just want to, before we move to the next thing, ask, is this crossing the line? They became friends years after Justice Thomas was Justice Thomas. And um, so it's hard to argue. It's not like they were, you know, grade school friends or law school friends. They were Supreme Court friends. Does that make a difference? 
Well, uh, it certainly doesn't make a, a difference for the purpose of reporting, uh, because that's reported anyway, and he didn't report it. And so that's a, that's a clear line that's been crossed here. Now, whether you can accept the gift or not does turn on whether you are a personal friend. And one of the things I explained to the White House staff when I was the chief White House ethics lawyer is that uh, the minute you start your job in the White House, it's amazing how many people want to become your personal <laughs> friend. And yeah, yeah. so imagine that instead of uh, just being a White House staffer or someone like me in the, in the White House, there is a chief ethics lawyer. Uh, you're the justice of the United States Supreme Court. It's amazing how many personal yeah. friends you get. And of course, billionaires may very well want to be a personal friend of a Supreme Court justice or maybe one or two if they can get two. Um, and this is a, is a serious problem, uh, which creates appearance of impropriety, yeah. uh, accepting the gift to begin with, which is one of the reasons I believe that Justice Thomas may have been uncomfortable with all this being disclosed, because there's so many gifts of free uh, air travel, yacht. Now we've got a real estate deal all with the same person who's very much tied in with people who have views uh, that they want um, to represent to the court, at least on e legal issues or broad legal issues, if not on particular cases. Uh, so the whole thing doesn't look very good at all. No, not at all. Is it different? Are these um, disclosure laws different for members of Congress, cabinet officers, um, ordinary government employees? The disclosure form is somewhat different, but it's basically the same. It's all under the Ethics and Government Act of 1978 uh, that was passed after the Watergate scandals and the lack of confidence in government uh, that came out of the Watergate scandal. Uh, and uh, one of the answers to that problem was the uh, approach of full disclosure. We're going to have some prohibitions, the gifts you can't take. Um, for example, someone who's not a personal friend who gives you a trip on a yacht, you can't take that. Um, yeah. And then other gifts, okay, you could take it, but you got to disclose it. Uh, and uh, we have two sets of rules here under the Office of Government, the Ethics and Government Act of 1978. They apply to all three branches of government. We have disclosure by the President of the United States. President uh, um, uh, Biden files his uh, form every year. Um, candidates for president, President Trump, former President Trump, uh, filed one uh, as a candidate for president. Uh, Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court is a somewhat different form, members of Congress, somewhat different form, but uh, the disclosure principles and the rules are basically the same. And so in addition to gifts and travel, um, Harlan Crow bought property including Thomas's mother's current residence and let her continue to live there and paid for renovations. But Clarence Thomas did not report any of that. And my understanding is that real estate is one of those things that if it exceeds a thousand dollars must be reported. So was that the case at the time that this purchase was made? Uh, was that a clear violation of the rules? I believe the purchase of the property did need to be reported. And so in addition to the gifts section of the uh, annual disclosure form, and I worked with this form a lot in the White House, uh, there's another section on transactions. If you buy and sell securities, investments in companies, or real estate, or any other transactions uh, worth more than a certain amount, here the threshold was $1,000, you need to report the transaction. Who was the transaction with? You know, what was the value of the transaction? What was bought? What was sold? There is an exception for a personal residence where you were living in with your spouse. 
well, that wasn't this. Uh, uh, Justice Thomas is not married to his mother who was living in the house. <laughs> he, he married to Jenny Thomas, which is a whole other set of issues we, we can talk about. But uh, what we've got going on here is that this is a house that he had owned with other family members, inherited from a grandparent, and uh, it was sold to Mr. Crow. Now, why Mr. Crow wants this real estate was pretty clear. He wanted to create a, um, eventually, I guess, a, a museum in honor of uh, Justice Thomas. Uh, yeah. Well, that's that's very nice. And maybe Justice Thomas could have donated the home uh, uh, to Mr. Crow for that purpose after his mother passed away. She's going to live in the home. She's still living in the home or was. And, you know, but he takes money. He takes cash for it. Well, that's a transaction. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's really quite surprising it's to say if, if ordinarily if, if someone had a house and someone else wanted to start a museum and they're on it, they might say, okay, I'll give it to you. But no, right. it had to be a cash transaction. That had to be reported. It wasn't reported. That's another serious lapse of judgment. I, I think it was a violation. I, I would say there's also some question in my mind as to whether the museum was the real reason or whether it was the transfer of cash that was the real reason. Um, at least it's something that an investigation might be necessary to find out. But in that connection, there's also reporting um, this weekend that Clarence Thomas has been receiving income from a real estate firm known as Ginger. And I'm hoping that your Ginger, the adorable dog, is going to make an appearance here because it's just so ironic that the name is Ginger and that the company name is Ginger. Anyway, he's been reporting income from a Ginger that doesn't exist anymore. It hasn't existed for 17 years. It stopped in 2006. So, um, and at first I thought, oh, well, maybe it's just a record keeping mistake because there was a second ginger that started paying. And so maybe it just was, he failed to change the name. But then I found out how much the amount was and it could be at least in six figures. So um, then I started thinking, does that you know, change of name matter? Is this significant? Is this something we should be worried about that he can't even get the name right that he's reporting income from? Well, we got to get to the bottom of this one. We only have some of the facts. Uh, somebody uh, ought to be taking a look at Justice Thomas's uh, tax returns and see what was reported about all this money coming in from Ginger. Uh, I'm sure we'll go through the whole rigmarole where he doesn't want to release his tax returns. We've been that, through that before. But uh, at this point, the Chief Justice ought to be uh, making a comparison there between the tax returns and the and the financial disclosure form. They ought to have an internal investigation at the court and the U.S. House and Senate need to look into it. I don't know what this money was in connection with this entity, uh, who was putting money into it and uh, how that money got to the justice. Uh, but it doesn't look like there was very much uh, disclosure at all about it. And it's very, very concerning that the, we have this on top of everything else. And we haven't even gotten to a discussion about the payments that his wife receives for her consulting business, which uh, arguably didn't have to be disclosed in yeah. existing law. They should be. And that's a weakness in existing law. So we've already got we've got that as well. This is a serious problem. So in terms of existing law, uh, I'm just going to ask a follow up question, which is, it seems like the rules have been strengthened or clarified uh, very recently by the courts. And do you think that change helps at all? Or is what Justice Thomas is doing 
still in a vague area and that we need better rules? Well, the rule was clear all along that uh, with reporting uh, travel on jets and private jets and yachts, uh, the transportation um, needs to be reported. Uh, there's an exception for personal hospitality of food, lodging, and entertainment that doesn't have to be reported. So in other words, I go to my friend's house for dinner. That does not have to be reported. Right. My friend invites me to go stay at their weekend house on the Poconos. I don't have to report that. My friend invites me to the weekend house on Cape Cod. I don't have to report that. But my friend puts me on an airplane, on a jet, to fly me up to Hyannis to go to the friend's house in Cape Cod. I do have to report that. Why? Because transportation is not personal hospitality of food, lodging, and entertainment. And that has been clear from day one. And that's what we told the White House staff back when I was there in 2005. Other ethics lawyers have told the White House staff. Um, the, the only thing that's exempt from the reporting is staying in the friend's house uh, while the friend is present. Uh, but if they're going to transport you there and put you on the airplane, whether they're flying you up to Hyannis on a commercial air or they're putting you on a jet that's their own jet or they're putting you on a yacht, that's transportation. That's not food, lodging, entertainment, and that needs to be reported, whether it's a personal friend or not a personal friend. The uh, judicial conference uh, decided they're going to clarify some of these rules for some reason and explain that a little more clearly to the judges, even though we've known that all along. And every employee has known that. The White House ethics lectures, I addressed that point. It's been well known. And it's somewhat embarrassing. We have to explain to the judges again the rule that food, lodging, and entertainment does not include transportation. And a yacht or a jet, a private jet, is not lodging, food, entertainment. Uh, and if they don't get it, so I, I think the problem with that so-called clarification, I don't know why it came about, mm. whether they're really trying to clarify or whether someone's trying to cover for Justice Thomas. I don't know what's going on here, but uh, the rule's been widely understood for a long time, and it, it wouldn't it'd be a rule change because to have a rule change, you need to go through Congress. Huh. We don't need a rule change. We just need uh, justices of the Supreme Court and members of Congress and everyone else to comply with the rules we already have. And, and do you think that the uh, lodge that um, was one of the places that uh, Justice Thomas went yearly is a personal residence or was that more, even though it was personally owned by Crow, how, how does that fit in? Is that a violation? Uh, as I understand it, the lodging is personal lodging in a house that you own uh, that's a residence, uh, oh, not okay. a commercial establishment. Uh, now, we know that there's some residences that are blended with commercial establishments. The Mar-a-Lago golf course is uh, obviously one of them. Right. Uh, so we can get into some gray area there. And, and some of these might be in that gray area. Uh, some of them are not. They're clearly in the had to disclose. But well, the question I keep coming back to is why is the justice of the United States Supreme Court playing games with the law here? I mean, why isn't he just disclosing it? Uh, isn't transparency 
important in our government is just as Brandeis said, his famous saying, sunlight is the best disinfectant. Uh, there's a reason we have transparency rules. And it, it appears that Justice Thomas either wasn't following them or he's trying to work his way around them in a clever way mm -hmm. that is unbecoming of a Supreme Court justice. How does this compare to other justices? Because I know there's um, reporting that shows that Justices Breyer and Ginsburg and other justices also um, have received travel and receive fees for lectures. Is this different um, or how, do, how does this compare to that? Well, we'd have to go back and see what, what uh, was reported um, and what was not reported and whether there was a failure to report. And there may have been a failure to report things that should have been reported in some instances. Uh, Justice uh, Ginsburg is no longer available for uh, questioning on that. Uh, but Justice Breyer, I guess, could, could answer questions. Uh, but I haven't seen um, allegations of uh, reporting failures of this magnitude. Yeah. Uh, with respect to any justice of the court in recent memory. I'm wondering yeah, if for, uh, oh, go ahead, Joel. Go, you know, go ahead, Victor. Fine. I, I was just wondering, I mean, so for people who may not have ever served in government, um, what are the, what is the ethics briefing like? Who briefs justices and government employees on these rules? Um, and, and do you think it's a thorough enough process? Well, in the White House, we had a chief ethics lawyer, and I performed that function from 2005 to 2007. Uh, and some of the chief ethics lawyers are, are better than others. Norman Eisen was a very good chief ethics lawyer for President Obama. Uh, and uh, uh, we've had some very good chief ethics lawyers in the Biden administration. Um, we had one chief ethics lawyer for President Trump who uh, went a somewhat different route and wrote a letter to the Office of Government Ethics saying, well, none of the ethics rules uh, that you have apply to the White House staff. And that later got in hot water with respect to advising a witness uh, to, uh, uh, to, to um, well, give somewhat misleading testimony to the January 6th committee. I'll put it to you that way. Right. Um, but anyway, uh, we've had a range of different uh, White House ethics lawyers, but the good ones, uh, and I think I was a good White House ethics lawyer, I mean, we, we just make it clear what the rules are. Okay, and that's the first step. You got to make it clear what the rules are. Um, and each agency has ethics lawyers who tell people what the rules are. Now, in the agencies, we have an inspector general. So if uh, somebody isn't following the rules, uh, they can go to the inspector, someone can report it to the inspector general, and then there's a follow up investigation by the inspector general. I suggested in a book I wrote in 2009 uh, that the White House ought to have an inspector general, too. Um, uh, we just had too many problems that I, I thought that, you know, you, you need some in, independent investigatory authority. With respect to the Supreme Court, we have neither. We don't have an ethics lawyer or an inspector general. We got nine justices who um, pretty much do what they want and interpret the rules for themselves and don't weigh in um, uh, with respect to each other's conduct. They're not monitoring each other's conduct. Uh, and, you know, I've compared it uh, to an academic department where you've got a bunch of professors with lifetime tenure. you got some misconduct, sexual harassment or something else going on and retaliation. And nobody wants to um, uh, to expose anyone else or criticize anyone else. It's the phenomenon of colleagues covering for colleagues. Uh, we see it in academic departments and universities. We see it certainly in police departments, uh, colleagues covering for colleagues. Uh, and this is what we're getting on the U.S. Supreme Court. 
is um, no one's willing to hold, the justices aren't willing to hold each other to account and say we have some, some ethics rules here, some standards, and um, we're going to hold each other accountable. Uh, and this, this, this doesn't work. This, this approach to ethics doesn't work. And it hasn't always been this way in the Supreme Court. They, they had a justice in 1969, Abe Fortas, who was forced off the court yeah. because of some uh, similar issues, although I would say nowhere near as egregious as what we're facing right now with Justice Thomas, uh, because the justices were more uh, willing and members of Congress of both political parties more willing to uphold uh, standards of ethics and transparency. I think the Fortis example is really an important one to make because he did end up resigning from the court. He had taken some money from someone who got indicted. He returned the money, uh, but he left because it was a bipartisan consensus that at least the appearance of impropriety was there and that he needed to resign and he did the, the difficult thing and he did resign. And as you noted, Richard, it was far less egregious than what we're seeing now. And, and that raises the two questions really for me. One is if the court won't do anything, if Roberts can't or won't do anything, if they don't police themselves, why can't Congress do it? And what is the way to force at least recusal in these situations where it appears to be some sort of conflict of interest that there's a relationship between someone and cases that come before the court? Well, Congress won't do it because Congress is so politically divided. Uh, it's the same reason why Congress wouldn't uh, carry through with the uh, conviction of Donald Trump for insurrection and sedition in his second impeachment trial in uh, February of 2021. I mean, despite very strong evidence, uh, everything's just uh, along party lines with a few exceptions. And Republicans like Liz Cheney, who stood up to Donald Trump, were ostracized from the party. And we see the same thing here with the Supreme Court. Uh, Justice Thomas is that critical fifth vote. Um, and that means a lot to people. Uh, and to go after Justice Thomas is, is viewed as a, as a threat. Uh, by those who want to keep a, uh, a very con as conservative majority of the court, it's in most cases a 6-3 conservative majority, but in some, such as the reversal of Roe versus Wade and Dobbs, it was a 5-4 conservative majority. And uh, a lot of people are on the conservative end of the political spectrum are not going to tolerate any criticism of, uh, or certainly any effort to get yeah. Justice Thomas to retire from the court. Uh, it's a very different political environment, and it's it's surprising that people can't um, rise above politics because we had heated politics in the 1960s when um, Justice Fortas uh, was forced to resign. If we go back and look at the uh, what was going on there, the Chief Justice of the Court, Earl Warren, staunch conservatives, wanted him impeached uh, for being way too liberal. Uh, so we had a very politicized environment with the rhetoric about the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, some of the attacks on Justice Fortas um, were unjustified. There were anti-Semitic attacks made on Justice Fortas. Um, and uh, uh, so there'd be every reason for liberal Democrats to rally around him. Uh, but back then, at least, people looked at the facts. And the facts there weren't good. It wasn't as bad as this. I mean, you had a, long, a client, an old client, Louis Wilson of the Arnold, was the, now the Arnold Porter firm. It was Arnold 
Gordon Fortas. Um, and Louis Wilson had gotten himself in a securities fraud situation. But Fortas took the money before Luke Wilson was indicted. Yeah. Uh, and then gave the money back as soon as Wilson was indicted. And he didn't fail to disclose it. We didn't have the disclosure rules. We have those now in the Ethics yeah. and Government Act of 1978. Um, and so this was not a question of, of a disclosure lapse or fail, filing a false document with the United States government, which if done intentionally is a felony. Uh, but we didn't have those rules at the time. Uh, and, and yet Democrats and Republicans in the House and Senate were very upset that Abe Fortas had been nominated by the president, by President Johnson to be the chief justice of the United States even, and, and then it had all these problems. And so they not only jettisoned the nomination for chief justice, but Earl Warren himself apparently persuaded Justice Fortas to step down from the court. This handed a seat to Richard Nixon. Uh, yeah. The Democrats supported that. Earl Warren, while a Republican, was a liberal Republican who was handing Richard Nixon an opportunity to appoint an arch conservative yeah. to replace Justice Fortas. Richard Nixon tried to do that. The Senate blocked it, and we ended up with Justice Blackman uh, from uh, Minnesota here, um, and a new Chief Justice, Earl Warren, also from Minnesota, the Minnesota Twins. Although I have to point out that the conservative justices were not rejected on uh, policy grounds. They were rejected for other uh, disqualifying reasons. So uh, Haynesworth and Carswell. Right. Exactly. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And that was it. Yeah. So the court, you know, the, but the people, despite all the politics yeah. going on in a, in a time it is very heated politically and polarized. It's, it's not as if there was some sort of consensus in the 1960s. Right when you had the riots in the streets and the assassinations and the far left and the far right and uh, the, all the craziness of the 1960s. But when it came to ethics, what are we gonna tolerate? What are we not gonna tolerate? Uh, with respect to the Supreme Court, the answer was this, even though Justice Fortas broke no law, he went right back into law practice, had a successful law practice, did not suffer, uh, uh, other consequences for his actions, but it was not acceptable in the U.S. Supreme Court. Yeah. And he's forced off the court at a young age after only serving four or five years on the court. Um, and then, you know, with respect to the presidency a few years later, and Jill, you've been through this with, with Nixon. I mean, granted, it was very partisan. And I remember watching those hearings when I was 10 years old and uh, uh, listening to the uh, various uh, arguments favoring Nixon and was a Congressman Sandman from New Jersey. And yeah, we'd all so what's he going to say next? But at a certain point, they realized game's up. And uh, uh, that's what happened the summer of 1974. They realized game's up yeah. with Nixon. And they told him that uh, very different than the attitude toward Donald Trump, who may now very well get the nomination of his political party for president, even though he instigated incited an insurrection and sedition in, on January 6th of 2021. So this isn't just about the Supreme Court. It's about a political environment where in order to get our way politically on whatever issue, we're willing to tolerate ethics violations in the Supreme Court and even insurrection and sedition in the White House. And that's yeah. a dangerous political environment. So we so we mentioned um, other some other investigations that should happen, but I, I want to ask you about what you think Justice John Roberts should be doing because this is after all after all his 
Supreme Court and perception really matters. Do you think he should be forcing Justice uh, Thomas to submit a resignation letter? What do you think should be happening right, right now inside the Supreme Court? Well, the one thing he could do is investigate what's going on here and find out what's going on. This is a, a lot more serious for the Supreme Court than a leaked abortion opinion. And I, I think the leaked abortion opinion was a tragedy. And I agree fully with Justice uh, Chief Justice Roberts ordering an investigation. And if we catch the leaker, uh, if they're a lawyer, they ought to be disbarred. But that being said, this is a lot more serious financial conflicts of interest yeah. that are not disclosed, violation of federal disclosure regulations. Once again, if you intentionally fill out a form, a financial disclosure form, and intentionally lie, then that's a felony. Now, we don't know whether Justice Thomas intentionally lied or whether he just had an interpretation of the rules that just made no sense or whether it was negligent. We don't, we don't know the facts here. But the Chief Justice needs to investigate. Uh, and this is just as important as that leaked abortion. It's more important. So to follow up on Victor's question, which you know is what can the court do, there are other possibilities, which is Congress could investigate, the Department of Justice could investigate, the Chief Justice could investigate, um, and recusal would be one consequence um, in these situations. So first of all, who do you think should be investigating? Yeah. And should there be something you mentioned maybe that the court needs to have a, appointed an ethics officer and an inspector general? Um, what, what do you think about those things? What do you think about some way of forcing recusal in cases where the conflict of interest relates to a point of view that is being advocated at the court or a specific case? Well, these are very difficult issues with respect to uh, Justice Thomas's disclosure issues, as well as his failure to recuse from several cases involving the January 6th insurrection uh, despite uh, uh, his wife's involvement in the efforts to overturn the 2020 election. That was another set of ethics issues for Justice mm -hmm. Thomas. Uh, those issues should be investigated not only by the Chief Justice, but by the United States House and Senate Judiciary Committees. Yeah. Now, I don't know what the House and Senate Judiciary Committees want to investigate. Jim Jordan is, I believe, the chair of the House uh, Judiciary Committee, and uh, unless this involves uh, Hillary Clinton's email or something really serious <laughs> like that, I don't know whether he's going to investigate. Uh, but it is it is a matter of some concern, a, a lot of concern, um, that, that that this has happened, and and this in addition is to say to the recusal, the failure of recusal of Justice Thomas in the cases involving subpoenas of documents by the January Sixth Committee. And some of those documents may have involved his own wife's communications with the White House. And I am, you know, I, going forward, Congress may need to pass laws that put an inspector general inside the Supreme Court or at least an ethics lawyer. We need to have accountability here. And just one last thing about, is there any um, validity to the argument that Congress can't pass ethics rules that are enforceable because of separation of powers? Well, I understand the Chief Justice has suggested that may be the case. That's a very bad road to go down, to say we have lifetime tenure on the court and uh, we get to decide cases that determine the constitutional rights of every American. Uh, we can overturn precedent if we want to. Uh, it, 50 years of precedent under Roe versus Wade uh, out the door because this majority 5-4 sees things differently. 
we have all this power, we got lifetime tenure, but we're not accountable to anybody. And so uh, even in an academic department, we have these professors with lifetime tenure and people may abuse that. Uh, at least you got some administrators who are supposedly in charge uh, and is somebody they're accountable to. You don't just say, well, we're the Supreme Court of the United States. We got lifetime tenure. We do anything we want with it. We're interpreting the Constitution. We affect your rights every day, but we're not accountable to anybody. So I'd be very interested. I, I worked with... Um, Chief Justice Roberts and his confirmation hearings. Uh, when he was nominated to the court, I uh, dealt with ethics issues to make sure that there were no alleged financial conflicts of interest that could be uh, alleged against him. There weren't any. I, I believe he's a very good nominee. Um, Justice Alito was nominated as well. Um, and they haven't had either one of them serious ethics issues on the, on the court, although I wish they would sell some of their personal stock holdings and avoid conflicts. But uh, that being said, um, I, I wonder whether if the uh, senators had asked in the confirmation hearing uh, about this, do you think that Congress can't pass ethics rules for the court? I, I doubt either one of them would have said, oh, that's unconstitutional. Because if they had, they wouldn't be where they are today. Yeah. So um, I, I, I have serious concerns about that, that approach. So are there any other Supreme Court reforms that you think should be implemented? Well, you know, we do need to think about um, lifetime tenure. And I know that's built into the United States Supreme, uh, the United States Constitution uh, for all federal judges. Uh, but people live a lot longer than they did at the time of the founding. And so when someone, I mean, Justice Thomas has been there for 30 years, yeah. over 30 years. Uh, and Justice Ginsburg was there for a long time. I and mean, we have justices who've served for, for quite some time. And is, does lifetime tenure make sense? Um, yeah, but that would require a revision to the Constitution. Now, one uh, idea that's been brought forward, though, is that, uh, well, judges are guaranteed lifetime tenure. It's not sure uh, that there's a constitutional right to sit on a certain court. And we could have judges rotate off the United States Supreme Court after 15 years and go on the courts of appeals and get their lifetime tenure, and then the president would put someone else on the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, I have serious reservations about uh, anybody, no matter how ethical they are, serving for such a long period of time. Uh, and I know there are many admirers of, of Justice Ginsburg, but, but if she had chosen to retire at age 75, or at least during the Obama administration, uh, there were some opportunities there. Uh, Roe versus Wade would probably still be the law of the land. And I, I don't blame her for that, but um, I just wonder about the system we have in place, uh, whether the founders really intended for any justice to serve uh, this long. And once again, with Justice Thomas, it's been uh, 31 years. And, and what do you think about changing the number of justices uh, to at least match the number of circuits? Because Obviously, the country has grown and the number of circuits has grown, but we've stayed at nine. The president has the right to do that um, only if the United States Congress passes a law right. expanding the number of seats. And the, the Congress can, by majority vote in the House and the Senate, change the composition of the court and have 11 seats uh, instead of nine or 13 or whatever number they want to choose. It could be the number of circuits. It could be any other number they want. Um, they could have justices 
uh, new justices replace judges, justices who reach a certain retirement age or come in in addition to those justices. Um, there are a number of things that Congress could do, but you need to get a bill through the House and the Senate. Uh, this was considered, seriously considered, in the Judicial Procedures Reform Bill of 1938 uh, in the Roosevelt administration. Uh, people were accusing the president of trying to pack the court, but it was actually Congress that was going to pass this bill. And eventually the bill did not get support in Congress, but that was in part because some of the arch conservative justices who were blocking New Deal legislation uh, changed their votes, at least one of them, Justice Roberts and uh, no relation to the current chief justice. But you know, they, uh, we've had this discussion before. It's all within the power of Congress. Uh, we haven't always had nine justices. We've had some of us had fewer, sometimes more. Um, and uh, that's something for Congress to figure out, but I'm not sure that uh, the US House of Representatives right now is interested in that idea, unless a Republican president is elected, in which case they might become very interested in the idea, but we'll see. So before we end, I want to, change to one last topic, which is Trump's $500 million lawsuit against Michael Cohn, um, which is based in part on his claims that Michael Cohn violated attorney-client privilege and his ethical obligations uh, under the New York bar. Uh, anything you want to say about that lawsuit? It's potential for any kind of consequences. Is it just nonsense? What do you think? Well, I'd have to go through the entire complaint, but Donald Trump has filed a lot of lawsuits and uh, has usually not been successful. In this situation, we have a lawyer who ended up going to jail in connection with a payoff uh, that his client uh, arranged and wanted to have secret to Stormy Daniels. And so his client could keep a secret from the Federal Election Commission and keep it out of the FEC filings while running for president. So the client goes to jail for doing something for a client. I mean, the, the lawyer goes to jail for doing something for a client. The client's out scot-free, never got prosecuted by the feds. And that finally has been prosecuted by the Manhattan District Attorney in connection with this same scheme. Uh, and uh, the, the, for Donald Trump to say, well, gee, uh, these communications were subject to attorney-client privilege uh, makes no sense. Why? Because there's a crime fraud exception to the privilege. Um, and that's been true at common law for a very long time. If you consult your lawyer for advice on how to commit a crime or instruct your lawyer to commit a crime, tell your lawyer to do something that sends your lawyer to jail, uh, you can't say, well, that's a privileged communication. Nobody can find out about it. Or that the lawyer doesn't have the right to say, as he's being led away in handcuffs, uh, well, my client told me to do it. Uh, it doesn't get the lawyer off the hook. And uh, Michael Cohen did his time in the joint. But um, to say, well, he can't talk about it and somehow the client is protected in this crime fraud scenario, that doesn't fly. And there's enough evidence of crime fraud on the part of uh, former President Trump that he's been indicted for falsification of business records by the Manhattan District Attorney. He was referred to as individual number one in the indictment of Michael Cohen in the federal case. Uh, I just don't see an attorney-client privilege there or a breach of duty of confidence. Right. Uh, I would think the crime fraud exception applies. Right. He's, he's also, in, in fairness to the lawsuit, uh, which I personally think is frivolous and will end up being dismissed. Uh, and Michael Cohn is today uh, having a press conference. I don't know if it's about the lawsuit or what it's about, but um, we'll try to find out before uh, too long. 
Uh, but he's also claiming that it was a breach of a non-disclosure agreement uh, that he had with Michael Cohn, similar to uh, the non-disclosure agreement that he sued Stormy Daniels about. Um, but again, it seems like the ethical issue is on Michael Cohn's side here, not on his side. Mm -hmm. So thanks for addressing that issue. And uh, for our listeners, more to come on the Michael Cohn. We are trying to be in touch with him to have him come on the show and tell us about the lawsuit and uh, whatever his press conference was about today. So thank you so much, Richard. It Thanks. has been very enlightening to have you as a guest. You speak very clearly. And I certainly got the impression that there were clear non-disclosures or, or disclosure violations by Justice Thomas. And hopefully some action will be taken to hold him accountable. But I'm glad that there was the sunlight shed on this issue. Yes. Thank you, Richard. Thank you very much for having me. That was a very interesting discussion. And I remember, I mean, I, you know, I was thinking back to my time just interning at the White House. And I remember the first day and the last day I was briefed by an ethics lawyer about what the ethics uh, rules are for an intern. And, you know, if, if we have to go through that, I really hope this wow. Do that, um, and they they have some sort of ethics lawyer to brief them. But it is really just hearing Richard talk about this. It's just I mean, you have to wonder why is he doing this, and you know this is so beneath the proper conduct of a Supreme Court justice. Don't you think it's because he can, and yeah. Yeah. that he's gotten away with it this long? I mean, yeah. he's been on the court all these years. He reported maybe twenty years ago. He reported stuff, yeah. and then he stopped re reporting. That's he just how reporting. it is. Yeah. And so exactly. this, I mean, there must be something that should change and has to change in the Supreme Court to make sure this never happens again. It's, it's And I know that, um, you know, we had on Sheldon Whitehouse actually a few years ago at this point to talk yeah. about just the money that right wing groups are pouring into the court. But he's also he, along with Dick Durbin, I think, are exploring legislation to make sure that we can uh, strengthen and, um, you know, this, make sure this never happens again uh, with the ethics code. He, he was on either NPR or MSNBC this morning, Sheldon Whitehouse, talking about how important these issues are and what needs to be done. He is yeah. a great leader on this subject. And yeah, maybe we should have him come back on to talk more about what can be done and you know what can Congress do if the court is not willing to police itself. Yeah. Um, and whether policing itself would ever be sufficient, uh, yeah. I, d I don't know. Maybe that would never be enough, but it certainly would be a step forward yeah. from where we are now, where nothing. I'm surprised there's happened. no inspector general at the Supreme Court. That's, um... And there's no real investigative tool. I mean, what they ended up using in the situation where of the leak, yeah. where they thought they did have to investigate that although right. they haven't seen fit to investigate this, no. was a, basically um, a law enforcement official who yes. is not a, an investigator, but who ha had an army background and right. uh, did what she could. But yeah. Yeah. it isn't her job. That isn't w within the, the scope of her assigned duties or her um, qualifications for getting the job for which she is very qualified. Mm -hmm. yes. it, it's just a different subject matter. So I, I think a lot needs to be done. And I'm so glad that we were able to make clear the violation that has occurred 
and that, you know, they have used the improved or reinvigorated rules that were just announced as a thing that confused people to thinking, well, maybe this wasn't a violation when it happened. The answer is very clear from Richard. It was a violation then. It is a violation now. And the change in the rules didn't make any difference and was unnecessary. Yeah, exactly. Um, in the remaining time that we have left, should we talk about Fox News? Because there's been a lot of news about this. I know we're going to try to have on um, some people who can talk about this uh, Dominion defamation lawsuit and the trial. Um, but this week, uh, we're recording this on Monday. And um, yesterday being Sunday, uh, apparently the judge has delayed the trial by one day. So it's going to start on Tuesday. Um, should we be concerned about that? There's been a lot of talk about settlement. Um, and I feel like Fox shouldn't settle and we should let this play out uh, in court. What do you think? I think you misstated that. You think that Dominion shouldn't settle. Fox should. This is going to kill Fox. Yes. They they have every reason to get this not to be a public hearing. They have succeeded in something I consider very important and that I'd like to have someone on the show to talk about, which is they have kept cameras out of the courtroom. And there is no better sunlight than people viewing it I mean, think about how differently you feel about the George Floyd uh, trial. Or even think about Johnny Depp and Amber Heard during that trial. I mean, yes, although that's not such. I mean, uh, I I can't put that in the same category as the murder of George Floyd. I was just saying seeing the police and George Floyd. But yes, I mean, having cameras in the courtroom is just is important for all kinds of cases. But here where there is a significant democracy issue at stake. It seems to me that having cameras, and there is no evidence that cameras interfere with the trial. They simply, there's just no record. Back in when I was a young lawyer, the argument was, oh, people will play to the cameras. It'll be disruptive. Nowadays, you have a little teeny camera and you can make sure that the jury, in cases where you don't want the jury to be known, you don't ever show the jury. They didn't in the trial of Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd. Um, I just think it's a very important issue. But as to the Fox, the current reporting is not 100% clear. Um, and again, before we went on air, there may be, or since then, there may have been an announcement by the judge as to why he delayed. The speculation was that it was because of uh, a possible settlement, last minute settlement. Um, I would only say, number one, as of the time we're recording this, we don't know what the reason for the delay of one day was. And number two, that if it is for settlement discussions, I think that the strength is in the hands of Dominion and that they must require public disclosure of the fact that Fox lied, Mm -hmm. that there was no um, election fraud, that there was no stolen election, that their reporters knew that it wasn't true. And that has to be played on Fox News because playing it on MSNBC or CBS or NBC is meaningless. In order for it to have any impact, the audience that partakes of that false news needs to hear it from them saying, we're sorry that we were trying to keep your loyalty by lying to you. That's what it has to say. And anything short of that is not worth settling for. Um, Not, not even 1.6 
billion, not even 2.6 billion, which is what Smartmatic is suing for. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it just shouldn't, shouldn't happen. So that's my opinion. Cameras in the court and no settlement for Fox. Yes. And I know we'll talk about this a lot more uh, as the trial uh, ramps up. And uh, for, for everyone listening, it'll be, I know Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity and other Fox exec executives are um, going to um, be testifying. So that should be some exciting and, and hopefully um, it'll, it'll, it'll shed some light on, on what's it, happening. It will be revelatory yeah. as to yeah. what Fox has been doing. And yeah. that's why having the trial right. and having cameras yeah. or at least audio recording yes. would be a very, very important thing. I yep. said from the moment that these suits were filed that it could change how fake news gets disseminated because yes. Yes. if Fox is held liable, there will be more liability for future lies. And yes. so they might have to stop lying. If they stop lying, then they start losing their customer base because their customer base wants to hear the lies. Yep. And so I'm hoping that one of the results will be that people will get the truth and that we will have a much sounder foundation for our democracy yeah. by having that. Yes, yes. Well, we thank everyone for watching this episode of iGen Politics. We hope that you'll tune in next week for a new episode. If you um, are listening to this, you can find us wherever you follow your podcasts and, and share it with your friends. If they're listeners of this podcast, we're on Apple Podcasts. Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you follow it, we're there. Be sure to like and subscribe us on YouTube. If you watch it, you can find us on youtube.com slash Politicon. Be sure to like and subscribe so you don't miss our live episodes. And be sure to follow us wherever you follow your podcast if you do prefer to listen and rate us as it helps others find this podcast. Thank you, everyone, for watching and listening. We will see you next week.